Chapter Two, High School. Before I knew the word politics, I had already been uprooted with my community three times, to make room for whites in newly declared white areas. Before I knew the word apartheid, I had already been denied timely education and daily bread. Before I learned anything about percentages and equality, I already knew that white. Meant more food, more land, more money, more cattle, better housing, better schooling, better health facilities. Before I heard the word terrorist, I was already being terrorized. Before I knew the concepts of oppression and exploitation, I knew that our people were killed and buried on the betel potato farms. Before I knew the word communist, as defined by Boerter and his predecessors, my grandfather had already told me that. Whites do not love us; they hate us. Hunger among blacks is not a natural disease, but an apartheid-created tool of oppression. If blacks were edible, whites would have had barbecues every day. Chenuami Farisani. In January 1967, at the age of 14, Cyril advanced from Chilidzi Primary to Sekano Ntuani High School. The new school had a wide catchment area, attracting learners from a variety of Soweto neighbourhoods. Sekano and Tawani lay outside Chiavelo, on the other side of the old Poch Road, and it was a fair trek from his home. Here, Cyril found friendship with three other young boys from Chiavelo, who would become his companions each day on the way to and from school: Ishmael Mkapela, Laibon Mabasa, and Griffith Zabala. These three boys were from Tsonga-speaking families, and so had not met Cyril in the ethnically divided primary school system. Cyril's young friends were to go on to become significant political activists in the Black Consciousness Movement. In their early years, it was Ishmael Makabela, whose life was most closely to parallel Cyril's. The two began together in Class One A at Sekano and Tawani. The reception class for the cream of the students from surrounding primary schools. Their experiences were not immediately happy ones, overshadowed by the ethnic belittlement that the young vendor and songa boys suffered at the hands of their peers. As the children of Soweto were to grow older, the significance of the oppression of black people by white would almost erase these differences of language and culture. And boys from neighbouring suburbs would play football together at weekends without regard to the ethnic composition of the teams. In these early years, however, Mkabela remembers that the stigma of belonging to what was perceived as a small and rural people was almost overwhelming. It was nothing new for the Tsonga and Venda boys to be the butt of jokes and victims of ethnic stereotyping on the streets, but now this experience followed them into the classroom in a school that had substantial Zulu intake. Even more painfully for young children, the teachers in the school, who were middle class and most often themselves came from the established Zulu community, would sanction or even join in this ridiculing behaviour. Such repeated episodes of belittlement can entrench a sense of inferiority and self-hate among young children, an insight that the Black Consciousness Movement was already exploring in the face of racial discrimination. But it can also provide a motivation to prove oneself. So it was with Cyril and Ishmael, who found themselves under an added burden to prove we were good or better than the rest. At the high school, the Venda and Shangan students dominated the first five places in every class, 
and Cyril and Ishmael were themselves often vying for first and second places. Ishmael because of his shining intelligence, and Cyril, as Ishmael recalls it at least, through sheer determination and hard work. I was always that little bit cleverer than Cyril, but he was always even harder working than me. Indeed, Cyril was already exhibiting the perfectionist tendencies that were to mark his later career, and he worked tirelessly to polish pieces of work that other students regarded as already complete. One small Zulu boy who arrived at the school in 1969, two years younger than Cyril and his closest friends, almost immediately became their friend. This had been a school in which Venda and Songa speakers were obliged to learn Zulu, never the other way round. But now there came an exception. Duma Ntlovu was a child of strong character and independence of mind, and he was many years later to become a director on Broadway in New York and a major figure in the South African entertainment industry. In 1969, however, he was a small and rather scared little boy, arriving at Sekano Ntuani School, where first years were subjected to painful and cruel initiation processes lasting several weeks. Ndlovo stood out because he had no time for the ethnic chauvinism of many of his peers. His closest friend in primary school was from Venda, and Ndlovo had travelled there to visit. He loved the people and the language and the place. He stood out on his arrival at school because, uniquely among the young Zulu children, he was determined to speak and learn Venda. He immediately felt at ease with Cyril and Ishmael. I felt truly comfortable with these guys and they took me in. They decided to look after him and provided a protective cloak against the bullying of the other children that was part of the initiation process. Ndlovo remembers Cyril as the best-dressed and neatest boy in the school. He was never seen without a Bible. He was a personification of perfection. At high school, Cyril began to read as widely as the limited book resources allowed. He would also sit for hours on end in the back room on Nklaba Drive, that was his bedroom, reading newspapers and whatever books he could find, of almost any kind. One particular interest was history. Ramaphosa loved to read about episodes of historical upheaval, and in particular the French Revolution. His favourite book, however, was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. This massive 1,200-page book by American journalist William L. Shirer, first published in 1960, is a heavily moralised account of the Nazi era, which denounces tyranny in all its guises. It dwells in particular on the evil diaries of Joseph Goebbels, history's most infamous master of the dark arts of propaganda, and explores the culpability of Germany's citizens for the crimes of their leaders. Cyril read this book over and over again, at school and at university, and liked to say to his friends, See how the mighty are fallen. It would be wrong to categorize Ramaphosa's reading tastes as highbrow. He was mostly exposed to less sophisticated mass cultural products from Britain and the United States. His favorite author was the prolific British writer of American underworld crime stories, James Hadley Chase, who is one of the most widely read writers across the British Empire. His titles, indicative of the modest intellectual ambitions of the author, included A Coffin from Hong Kong, the way the cookie crumbles, you have yourself a deal, the whiff of money, the vulture is a patient bird, and goldfish have no hiding place. Cyril would devour his books rapidly and enthusiastically. Ramaphosa also loved the movies. They played a very significant role in his development. 
Among his favorite movies while he was at high school was the 1967 Hollywood hit The Dirty Dozen. Ramaphosa also enjoyed the 1968 movie of Alistair MacLean's book Where Eagles Dare, starring Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton, and the more leisurely 1963 dramatization of The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen. Cyril may have enjoyed scenes in which SS assassins and teams of stereotypical Nazi ogres were decimated. According to Ramaphosa's later mentor, Genuani Farisani, the Lutheran Theological College in Natal was staffed in part by German missionaries so conservative in ideology and formal in manner that they appeared to be escapees from a Nazi war movie. There was no movie house in Chiavello, which then had and still today has quite rudimentary leisure facilities, and the youngsters would walk across to the nearby suburb of Cliptown. As they got older, and as finances allowed, Cyril and his friends would go to the movies accompanied by their girlfriends, who were becoming an increasingly important part of their adolescent lives. Cyril was later to become an organizer of film shows for Christian associations and as a student union chairman. He was even influenced in his choice of his later career as a union organizer by one of the Hollywood movies that he watched. Cyril's life outside school continued to be dominated by religion. With his three best friends, he joined a Christian youth club called The Young Ambassadors, run by one of the growing number of teachers who were infusing their religious teaching with direct and fiery political rhetoric. The four youngsters also joined the Student Christian Movement, SCM, a nationwide student body that Cyril was quite soon to lead. In all these actions, Cyril's friends, who were all leaders in their own right, described him as their leader, someone to whom they naturally deferred and who initiated and drove their activities. Cyril was already an impressive preacher who could deliver a message with real passion and force. His friends still remember him singing with great feeling his favorite song in Venda, which translates as follows. For he's coming soon, he's coming very soon. With joy we'll welcome the returning of the Lord. One teacher at his school was Tom Mantata, later a commissioner at the South African Human Rights Commission. He remembers Cyril as a deeply religious young man and also as a leader. While Mantata considered Cyril was at that time more religious than political, it was the relationship between politics and religion that increasingly preoccupied Cyril and his fellow young ambassadors. In their walks to and from school, the youngsters would debate contemporary political issues. Ishmael Mkabela remembers how they used to meet for a communal lunch communal so that those who did not have food could share the meals of the better-off students. They would pray extensively before lunch and then engage in theological reflection, which gradually turned into political deliberation. The mechanism through which such debate was initiated was a copy of the Rand Daily Mail, the most consistently anti-apartheid of the national newspapers, which the students would borrow from a teacher. They would place it on the table in front of them and discuss each of the major stories about political detentions, protests, evictions, and even about police informers. They would ask each other vexing questions. If you were Jesus, what would you say to that judge? If you were Jesus, what would you do to that informer? If you were Jesus, would you testify? These discussions were not politically sophisticated or well-informed, but they were ways of reflecting upon the growing tensions between their religious beliefs and an encroaching political world, characterized by brute injustice. 
At the same time as liberation theologians in Latin America were beginning to reconceptualize God's concern for the poor, so South African evangelicals like Cyril were reorienting the conception of Jesus and starting to see him as a friend of the oppressed. The issue of racial division began to loom increasingly large in Ramaphosa's life. He met few white people in his early childhood. The most memorable of these for Cyril and his school friends was Miss Brown, a young woman who would tour the schools of Soweto, telling stories about Jesus and the path to salvation he offered. When Ramaphosa was 15 or 16, he started to attend Christian camps that she organized, opening his eyes to the world outside Soweto for the first time. Miss Brown was very fond of Cyril, and this fondness was apparently reciprocated. The other whites in the everyday life of Chiavello were missionaries participating in local church activities, figures of authority, but predominantly benign ones. At this time, new forms of thinking and organization around black consciousness were emerging as a major force in South Africa's schools, black universities, and churches. The exploitation of black South Africans had intensified, and the search for fresh ways of understanding and responding to this exploitation became increasingly urgent in the churches and universities. What emerged as black consciousness towards the end of the 1960s was far from being a political organization or even a social movement. Indeed, the adherents of black consciousness ideas often avoided political organization in order to evade bannings and arrests. Rather, they adopted an intellectual approach to the position of the black person that asserted their pride in blackness and their dignity in the face of degradation and oppression and insisted upon the humanity of the African. Some scholars had seen the emergence of black consciousness as a consequence of the political vacuum created by the suppression of the ANC, which had reduced it to what Jeremy Seekings describes as an obscure passivity. By the mid-1960s, Seekings observes, overt political activity inside the country had been entirely and brutally suppressed. ANC and PAC leaders were either in jail or in exile, and the armed struggle had petered to a halt. It was in this repressive context that new movements emerged in the 1970s that eschewed formal political activity. It is true that for Cyril and his friends, and for many like them, the ANC had become almost invisible as a result of banning, detentions and harassment. It was confined to waging an ineffectual guerrilla war and launching diplomatic initiatives to isolate the Pretoria regime that were not reported within the country. While Raymond Sutner had recently emphasized that the ANC persisted in an underground form, interacting with black consciousness in areas like Durban and Johannesburg, and we shall see that even Cyril's own brother was to become part of just such underground activity, Cyril had no relationship with or awareness of these ANC structures. The most famous proponent of black consciousness ideas, Steve Biko, drew on philosophies elaborated across the previous 150 years in the United States and also upon post-colonial writings that emphasized the need for colonized peoples to reassert pride in their blackness and sometimes their Africanness and to restore their own sense of their dignity as human beings after decades of colonial degradation. While black consciousness had an immense ideological impact upon a generation of middle-class black South Africans, the internal psychological transformation it prescribed was both too little and too much. It was too limited, 
in that it did not provide solutions to the immediate practical problems faced by Africans. Black consciousness was found primarily in cultural and educational settings where it was an extension of the traditional generational critique young people were expected to undertake through youth associations. On the other hand, it went too far where it ran up against the beliefs of those who were committed to a conservative Christian understanding of politics. For many black consciousness thinkers in the United States, Christianity was the imposed religion of the colonizers and should therefore be rejected. Such a position was more unusual in South Africa. Here, the churches became the incubators of black consciousness thinking, though some of Cyril's contemporaries began to argue that if you were black, embrace and celebrate your blackness. You could not be a Christian. In the generational tensions characteristic of the period, Cyril and his friends were sometimes regarded as hotheads by their teachers and pastors. In these earlier days, however, they were all equivocal about the tensions between religion and politics. Although he does not himself remember taking such a position, Sekano and Tawani teacher Tom Mantata was an influential figure for many students because of his radical message that the Bible was poison. Cyril and his friends rejected any antithesis between Christianity and black consciousness. Their debate was not an ideological battlefield or a contest between dogmas. Most of our activities, according to Mkabela, were values-based. We were trying to search for the truth, for justice, and for the purpose of life. At the same time, they began to debate the implications of religious belief, its conservative effect, and the way it acted, in Marx's words, as the opiate of the masses, a formulation of which they were fully aware. Some of them argued that you're a Christian first, but being a Christian does not negate your blackness. As they got older, many of them changed their mantra. You're black first, but being black does not negate your Christianity. Mkabela was increasingly seen by the others as the most ecumenically inclined. Perhaps the most worldly of all the young men, Laban Mabasa, who later became president of the Socialist Party of Azania, SOPA, was to argue in 1972, when the friends were undertaking holiday work together, that if I go to heaven and there is a white man in there, I'm not going in. Ramaphosa himself would recount the experiences of the Israelites in Egypt and argue that God was always on the side of the oppressed. By 1976, when Cyril was in detention, the student Christian movement of which he was national chair had moved far enough to declare that apartheid is evil under God. Any Christian group that wished to share fellowship with the SCM was thereafter obliged to declare apartheid anti-human, satanic, and demonic. If they refused to do so, SCM members would refuse to worship with them. Biko had spoken of two stages of liberation, psychological and physical, but the movement he inspired remained unable to speak coherently about the second stage. However important it may have been as a precursor to effective political action, black consciousness was also a consolatory exercise. For most of the 1960s and 1970s, the opportunities for political action were curtailed by a coercive police state at the height of its powers. Discontent remained largely localized and there were no institutions able to mobilize protest across the country as a whole. There were none of the later powerful agencies such as a coherent domestic ANC, trade unions or civil society structures 
through which meaningful action against the state could be organized. Cyril became an extremely popular and successful student at Sekano and Tawani. Nevertheless, in 1969, his parents took the decision that the young man should continue his schooling at Mpapuli High School in the small town of Sibasa in Venda, close to where Samuel's family had its roots. Such a decision was not unusual, and many quite ordinary schools in the early 1970s had both day pupils and boarders who would live in hostels on the school grounds. The motivations behind the move were several. It may have been in part an attempt to insulate Cyril from the growing dangers of township crime and gangsterism. Samuel and Erdmute, moreover, may have wanted to separate him from friends they perhaps viewed as hotheads or radicals. Mpapuli High, they may have calculated, would allow Cyril to follow a properly religious upbringing rather than facing the politicization of religion that was confronting students in Soweto's troubled high schools. The decision that Cyril should study in Sibasa was probably also based on a desire to immerse a young man in his vendor heritage. To grow up with proper values, many families believed it was necessary to spend at least some of one's formative years in the north. Cyril was to claim in a 1985 interview that the decision was in fact his and that it was taken on just these grounds. I am vendor speaking. Having grown up in Soweto myself, I felt a need to go back to my roots, to go and see where my grandfather and my forefathers lived, and that was like an emotional thing for me. Mpapuli High School was set in the sleepy rural town of Sibasa. It was probably one of the three best schools in Venda at the time, and its enrollment included several hundred day pupils and around a hundred boarders, almost all of them boys. The boarders were housed in two hostels, one for boys and a smaller one for girls at the opposite end of the school grounds. Sebasa was a dramatically different setting from the streets of Soweto. Located in what is today the province of Limpopo, Sebasa is surrounded by an extraordinary natural beauty. At the same time, the region was and remains an economic and educational backwater. Shambolic government authorities, the local Bandristans of Venda, Leboa and Gazankulu, were the main sources of skilled employment. Harsh agricultural labour on white-owned farms was the norm, and remittances from the cities were an essential supplement to household income. The school itself had limited resources, and it is described by Cyril's then-principal, T.S. Nsandeni, as a country school. He elaborates that, we did not have teaching materials, resources or books. We tried to open the eyes of the students, but it was hard without even newspapers to make them aware of the outside world. At the same time, the school had ambitions. It was one of the first vendor language schools to offer science in its curriculum, and by the late 1950s, it already offered an unusually wide curriculum of vendor, Afrikaans, mathematics, biology, physical science, bookkeeping, agricultural science, and religious education. It was also a school in which the local community had invested some pride. It had its origins in efforts by local chiefs to reduce illiteracy in the earlier decades of the century. 
The buildings in which the school was housed in Cyril's time were built in 1958 and funded by subscription among 26,000 vendor taxpayers at the rate of £1 per year for three years. Although the South African government declined to fund the school buildings, excusing itself on grounds of shortage of resources, they were opened by the Minister of Education, H.W. Maria, in 1959. Local traditional leader Corsi Raluswielo planted his historic footprint in the entrance lobby to the school beneath a foundation stone. In this backwater of high but mostly unmet expectations, Cyril was to make his presence immediately felt. Principal in Sandeni had been forewarned of his arrival. I met one of Ramaphosa's teachers from Sekano and Tawane here in the street, and he told me, You have a very special student starting next year. I had forgotten all about this until the first meeting of the student Christian movement at the start of the school year. The SEM was the largest student organization in the school, and attendance at its meetings had been compulsory for some years. It was a custom of the organization that each year's new SEM executive committee would be chosen the previous year by the departing senior students. This year, however, the principal remembers things went awry. The teacher in charge of the SEM came to my office flustered. He told me the SEM had met in the normal way in the hall. However, at the end of a long meeting, they'd come to him with the news that the chairman had resigned. They unanimously wanted to have a newcomer, Cyril Ramaphosa, as the chair of the SEM for that year. The principal asked for Cyril to be brought before him and immediately fell under his spell. It was the first time I'd seen Cyril, and the first time I saw that smile, his special smile. This smile was to become Cyril's trademark as a negotiator and politician, an irresistibly charming grin behind which almost any emotion could be concealed. During Cyril's two years at Mpafuli, the principal became increasingly reliant on Cyril's advice about school management, student problems and teacher competency. Ramaphosa would stiffen his classmates' resolve, sharpen their discipline, organize their school projects and hone their class presentations. He would even harangue those whose work was not up to standard and explained to them what was and was not appropriate and acceptable behavior. Even more extraordinarily, Ramaphosa took the same approach with teachers who failed to perform their job to his satisfaction. He was thrown out of classes in mathematics and geography for taking to task teachers who were not properly prepared or whose attendance record was unsatisfactory. As a result, he dropped out of maths and wrote his geography exam without attending lessons. It was only because of the protection of Principal Nsandeni that disgruntled teachers did not achieve their goal of expelling Ramaphosa. Within a year, as we shall see, Cyril was taking the children out of the school, with the principal's permission, to travel on evangelical missions around the region. Cyril's academic performance continued to be very good, by the limited standards of the school at the time. In his matriculation year, he studied oral and written vendor, Afrikaans and English, physics and chemistry, and geography and history. He was never a strong student of vendor language and culture or of written Afrikaans. Indeed, he was always a better student of English than of vendor, 
perhaps indicating a degree of reticence about embracing his vendor heritage and the Afrikaans language, which was a symbol of oppression for the agricultural labourers of the North. While Cyril did not shine in the classroom study of vendor culture, the abuse of these traditions could ignite his rage. He could no longer maintain the routine deference expected from Africans towards whites. On one occasion, members of the school were gathered at an event at Mukumbai, the chief's kraal in Sibasa, a place treated with veneration even by those who embraced Christianity and modernity. At this meeting, there were some white people present. The senior police officer present, Captain Madzena, treated them with the customary exaggerated deference, leading them to the front of the crowd and ensuring that they were comfortable and well looked after. Such favours would have been accepted as quite natural. Cyril, however, emerged visibly upset from the crowd and began to complain that this was the chief's place. Why, he asked, must whites be given preference over Africans, even here, at the expense of the true owners of the place? Mazena did not take kindly to the intervention. He rushed towards Cyril threateningly, and the boy was forced to slip away into the crowd, where he was concealed by his fellow students. Cyril already knew some of his classmates from Soweto. Among those to whom he became very close was one of the girls, Hope Mukondeleli Mudao, the daughter of a notable vendor politician and Soweto socialite, Baldwin Mudao. Ten years later, she was to become Cyril's first wife. Mudao Sr. was a flamboyant figure in the Soweto suburb of Dube, in the mid-1960s a businessman and high liver. His political interest, on the other hand, was in the Bantustan of Venda, which the government was hoping to turn into a fully-fledged ethnic mini-state as part of its project to justify the disempowerment of Africans in their own country. This ethnic separatism, as elsewhere in the country, enjoyed a degree of support within Venda, in particular from the local elites, business, official and traditional, who were to benefit most from supposed self-government and the independence that Pretoria promised would soon follow. Mudao became leader of the Vendor Independent People's Party, later the Vendor Independence Party or VIP, and he was briefly chief minister in 1973. He was also for a long time an official representative of the Vendor Authority in Johannesburg. Like most of the local elite involved in homeland politics, he was a conservative, broadly in favour of vendor self-government. His party was actively contesting power with the pro-Pretoria chiefs who supported an entrenchment of the traditional authority from which they derived their legitimacy. After the first general election in Venda in late 1973, Chief Mpepu of the Venda National Party, VNP, secured election as chief minister. Mudai's VIP was to call a vote of no confidence in the election, accusing Mpepu of bribing members of parliament by ordering 70 rand suits for parliamentarians and taking them on a three-day trip to the game reserve in an effort to secure their votes. The VIP was eventually to secure the upper hand over the VNP in 1974 and 1975 as a result of defections of chiefs and headmen. However, Baldwin Mudao himself came under challenge in his own party by middle-ranking chiefs keen to enforce the vendor constitution's demand that only a chief could become chief minister. 
Although Mudao came from a powerful and prestigious lineage, he was not himself a chief. According to the eccentric British author Douglas Reed, a former London Times foreign correspondent who had retired to the Durban coast, Baldwin Mudao was not at all enamoured of African liberation movements. After discussions with fellow black African delegates at a Texas law conference, Mudao reported his new view of freedom fighters as follows. They did not want to help their brothers. They meant to take control and they would hit the black man and white man alike and Vendorland would be the first battleground in their fight against armed insurgents. It is unlikely that the political beliefs of Baldwin Mudao had any impact on the independent-minded Cyril. But Mudao was a person of great local political influence as well as a very prominent figure in the black business world of Soweto. He had worked as a public relations manager for Lever Brothers then the most desirable employer for an African in Johannesburg, and much later for McCann Erickson and J. Walter Thompson. Mudao would not have welcomed being mixed up with Cyril when he was later in detention. When Cyril eventually married Hope, he was joining a family of considerable wealth and political power tied into the established order in both Venda and Soweto. The relationship between Hope and Cyril was evidently a complex one, combining affection with what one friend saw as a common spiritual and political journey. She was by all accounts stunningly beautiful, smashingly pretty, says Royal Causa, and a person of considerable self-confidence and grace. In later years, after their marriage had ended, she remained protective of Cyril. Ramaphosa also found a new and exceptional role model outside school, if Cyril's father had hoped he might be protected from radical political influences in the far north, he was sorely mistaken. A few months after his arrival, he made the acquaintance of Chuniwani Farisani, a soon-to-be-ordained minister and prominent black consciousness activist who was about to become national convener of the Black People's Convention, BPC. Farisani was four or five years older than Cyril, but a world apart from him in terms of political experience. He had been one of the most brilliant students of his generation. When he met Cyril, he was enrolled at a theological college in Natal in preparation for a career in the church. He would travel the country speaking to young people, distributing literature, establishing organizational branches and articulating his radical and subversive ideas. It was on just such a tour that he met Ramaphosa. Farisani was a guest at the school's flourishing debating society in which Cyril was inevitably a star performer and the house was debating the motion that knowledge is more important than money. Although Cyril was young and inexperienced, Farisani identified something out of the ordinary in his questioning character and moral seriousness. It transpired that Ramaphosa was open to the radical interpretations of the Bible for which Farisani was later to become famous. Farisani argued the Lutheran Evangelical Church must turn away from political conservatism and become an instrument of opposition to oppression. For him, black people were in South Africa but not of South Africa, every square inch human but not members of the human race. We have the sense but we are not credited with the consciousness of our surroundings. We are present but always very absent. Why? The Lutheran Church of Cyril's childhood was conservative, charging members to respect the institutions of secular government 
that God had created. Farisani rebelled against the dubious teachings of the Lutheran Theological College at Umpumulu, from which he would be expelled in March 1972, deriding as nonsense its teaching that God created the lion to feed upon the buck. Why should blacks complain about white oppression? Likewise, he ridiculed the notion that wherever you find yourself, God has placed you there, so do not complain. Farisani illuminated the contradictions between the professed faith of South African Lutherans and the realities of their practiced life. They confessed Christ, yet almost all of their actions were contrary to Christ's teachings. At the center of the church, he believed, should be the understanding that God loves everybody and that his son died for everybody. Yet the Lutheran church practiced apartheid even in its own organizational structures. A church must teach if it is to be a living church. The Lutherans' teaching at the time was selective and inconsistent, he claimed. Leaders of the church turned a blind eye to the past raids, detentions and killings experienced by ordinary members. For him, the inner justice of the church, its preoccupation with the transformation of the heart, had to be accompanied by an outer righteousness or external justice in the transformation of the social and economic order. Farisani was a brilliant satirist of the church and the political establishment, later attributing the following words to P.W. Werther, God is in heaven and earth is for us. You have no right to take God through my country. It is interference in our domestic affairs. Does God have a visa? Your application for an entry visa to my country is granted on condition you come after sunrise on Sunday and leave the same day before sunset. You travel straight from heaven to the Waterkloof near the Deitzgerafomerdekerk and only white angels are included in your entourage. But Farisani was only incidentally a satirist. His later writings bear witness to a profound anger at the treatment of black people by white and he was able to give voice to the rage that otherwise lay unspoken in the chests of young men like Ramaphosa. Who are we, Lord? Who will name places after apes? No history behind us, no future ahead of us, no city in our name, no park in honor of our heroes, no tunnel, no airport, no bay, no cape, no nothing in our name, nothing, nothing, nothing. Ramaphosa was more than ready for the radical message Farisani was preaching. Their first collaboration was primarily organizational rather than theological in character. Together they set up the Black Evangelical Youth Organization, Beyo, an extramural society that evangelized widely and systematically in communities in the region around Sibasa. Their approach was to identify a village and then spend a week there preaching praying for the sick and infirm, inviting people to come to Jesus, very much in the manner of contemporary Pentecostals. Cyril was chairman of BU, a position that reflected the vast array of other responsibilities that rested on Farisani's shoulders. Ramaphosa was responsible for the day-to-day running of the organization, and Farisani took up the position of deputy chairman in order to be able to guide the young Ramaphosa. Bayou grew rapidly in size and in the scope of its activities, mutating into the bold evangelical youth organization so as to permit the participation of white Lutherans. 
Later still, it became the Bold Evangelical Christian Association, or BECO, reflecting Cyril's determination that adult members should be admitted to. At the same time, Cyril was rising in the student Christian movement. With his perfectionist zeal, he drew up fresh organizational principles of a federal character for the SCM that would allow it to bring together its members in cross-school collaboration. Like many other politicians, Ramaphosa was a talented youth actor. Most of his performances were religious in character, and he became well known as a driving force behind a production called The Trial of Trials, which explored the implications of the killing of Jesus. The drama was performed to a variety of local audiences and congregations, and it created great unease. Audiences included highly respectable members of the community, who were in reality the indirect employees of the apartheid government, for example, as Bantustan officials. In the conservative manner of the time, they would denounce the acting and preaching of Cyril as too worldly, and argue that it was wrong for the political world to be mixed with the Christian project of celebrating Christ. As Cyril brought his fellow students out to evangelize in poor communities around Sibasa, Farisani was gradually helping him towards a more radical interpretation of the key biblical passages with which he had been raised. For the young evangelicals, these visits to impoverished communities took on an important theological purpose. They came to understand that God was not deaf to the voices of the poor. When they went out to bring light and hope to a poor rural village, they would read Luke 4 and understand that God was going out with them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the broken-hearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. There was now fresh resonance to the biblical account of Moses' encounter with the Lord in Exodus 3, a chapter Cyril would have learnt by heart as a young child, studied and used as the basis for his adolescence preaching. God was still a forbidding character for Ramaphosa, but the God of Exodus, he now understood, was not deaf to the cries of the people. Moses brings a flock of sheep to the mountain of God, where he encounters an angel who emerges in a flame of fire out of a bush. When Moses turns to look, God calls out to him from the bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. The essence of the religion that now guided Cyril was the recognition of oppression and the obligation this brought to go out and to evangelize. God was aware of the suffering of his people and intended to take decisive action against the oppressors. I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand, 
and I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that he will let you go. Under Farisani's guidance, Cyril came to see the Bible's seemingly conservative injunctions about respect for earthly government in a radical light. The Lutheran church of Cyril's parents proclaimed that God had created earthly government even in South Africa and that God's creations were to be respected by all men. Farisani, however, emphasized that even if God had created government, the system of apartheid which was driving this authority in an evil direction was the creation of men. These men could rightly be castigated as selfish, bigoted and racist. Farisani believed it was right to fight apartheid because apartheid was an abuse of governing institutions that had been established by God. As Farisani was to make this point in a later writing, an agent of apartheid was like a baboon that watches its rich master drive a Rolls-Royce car. After a while, the baboon learns a little about how to drive and one day takes his master's key and drives off. The consequences, of course, are dire. The baboon mistakes a road sign with two curves indicating sharp bends for a warning about huge snakes next two miles and drives off the edge of a cliff. For Farisani, it was not the Rolls-Royce that was at fault, but the baboon. Unlicensed baboons today are driving the institution of government without the mandate of their creator and of their fellow citizens. In evangelizing poor villagers, Cyril became a celebrated preacher. Already expert in the superficial wordplay of formal debate and confident enough to preach to a large congregation, he now learned how to engage very poor rural people humbly in reflection on the foundations of their theology. He preached in villages to the old and to the sick. He preached on trains, on the streets, and in the churches of all denominations. He now possessed a kind of quiet magic. Beneath his self-assured humility, the fires of political ambition were starting to burn strongly. Dennis Beckett, a veteran Johannesburg journalist, remembers meeting Cyril for the first time at an SCM camp in 1967 or 1970 on the banks of the Hartebeersport Dam, which was then camp territory rather than the tourist playground of today. Beckett had been invited to assist at the camp by the religious activist Steve Truscott. He remembers that Cyril stood out among the young people at the retreat. An exchange with the youngsters about their ambitions in life produced a variety of big, loose talk from many of them. Beckett was struck, however, by the words of Ramaphosa. The young man said, quite quietly and without a trace of grandiosity, that he was going to be president one day. For Cyril's Soweto friends, the greatest challenge that came over him in his years in Sibasa was his growing fearlessness in the face of racial abuse. Even this change rested on theological foundations. The young men were familiar with the opening chapter of the book of Genesis, which includes the following passage. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God 
created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. For Ramaphosa, these verses were now among the most important in the Bible. He learned that God distinguished clearly between man and animals, unlike the scientific racists who were the architects of apartheid. God repudiated a hierarchy in which some men were closer to the animals than others. Men, moreover, were directly instructed by God to subdue the world, rather than to subdue one another. And man was made in the image of God himself. To be in this sense like the Creator was each human being's gift from God, something that could never be taken away by mere human action. To insult a black man was to insult his Creator too, because every person, whether black or white, was made in the Creator's image. In the school days of 1970 and 1971, Cyril would return from Venda to the family home in Soweto, where he spent his life in the company of his old friends from Sekano and Tuwane, and engaged in still more evangelical activity. The young friends also worked to earn money for precious luxuries like clothes and movie visits. Cyril had always been preoccupied with the need for financial independence, He did not like to ask his parents for money. And his brother Douglas remembers him returning exhausted after long days working in the bottle store in Johannesburg. He was almost too tired to spend the money he had earned, but he would rather work than borrow. Cyril recently recalled that, I've been an entrepreneur from the age of 16. What could have been a business career for me was interrupted by apartheid. I started as a hawker, buying and selling things, rather theatrically. Cyril went on to explain that his nascent business career was cut short because there was a struggle to be prosecuted. Cyril and his friends enjoyed quite remunerative part-time work almost every holiday as a result of the helping hand of a sister of Griffith Zabala, who worked at the Industrial Council for Clothing Industries in Duenfontein. Here, the young men, their friend Frank Shikani from university among them on one occasion, worked as clerks, earning the princely sum of 20 rand a week. The always well-presented Ramaphosa liked to dress up exceptionally smartly as a young gentleman for the train journey to the office, paying special attention to his ties and to the neatness of his suit. He continued to be a voracious reader and enthusiast for movies, and he dressed in the most current fashions that his hard-earned money could buy. At this time, Cyril became fascinated by the politics of the Kennedy clan in the United States and sometimes would wear his favorite tie, my Kennedy-style tie, on his way to work. At the end of 1971, Cyril matriculated with impressive marks. Only one student in his class, a key rival for the teacher's praise, named Simon Paswani, was to receive a first-class matriculation exemption. Cyril, like eight of his classmates, secured a second-class matriculation exemption, sufficient to make possible entry to university. Ramaphosa's academic potential was clear from his B-grade in geography 
one of only two B grades awarded to the entire class across the entire range of subjects in that year. Cyril's classmates, according to their former principal, did very well for themselves. However, their ambitions were purely local, with the five or six best performing of them becoming local lawyers, teachers, or local government bureaucrats. Cyril's horizons were wider and his ambition fiercer. Before setting off for university, Cyril had one last summer holiday to spend with his boyhood friends in Soweto. In the long school holiday after matriculation, he returned to Chiawelo and together they planned an adventure. Travel within South Africa by young black people was highly unusual. A plethora of laws and regulations restricted black people's freedom of movement. Nevertheless, the youngsters had ventured on extended walks and hitchhikes from Soweto, once reaching Durban, and on another occasion, Lesotho. Organized with the assistance of their Young Ambassadors Christian Youth Group and the Church, these trips had the purported purpose of allowing the youngsters to preach and service the community. For their late 1971 excursion, the youngsters decided to make the most ambitious trip yet to the city of Cape Town, a place about which they knew almost nothing. The trip was to demonstrate how young and inexperienced Cyril remained. But for Ramaphosa's friends, it was to show him in a new light as a fearless or even reckless antagonist of white racists. The youngsters departed on the 22nd of December 1971. Cyril's friends, there were five boys and two girls, collected him last because his house was closest to the old Pochofstrom Road, which was to be the starting point of their journey. They said a prayer before putting their bags on their backs and saying their farewells. The girls predictably secured lifts almost immediately and arrived in Cape Town within a couple of days. The boys, Griffith, Cyril, Libon, and two friends, Eugene Chain Villacazi and Albert Feller, found the going far harder. They had chosen the worst time of the year for such a venture. It was the height of summer, and the sun beat down mercilessly on their backs as they walked. It was the summer vacation, and most cars and trucks were filled to overflowing with families and friends heading to the sea or to stay with their relatives for the holidays. It was also Christmas holiday time for the truckers, and there were almost none of the expected rides in the back of a lorry available to the youngsters. They walked for many kilometres down the Potterstrom Road before they were picked up by a truck. Pointing out that they were heading in the wrong direction for Cape Town, the driver dropped them at the junction with a more promising road. The hot day turned humid and sweltering and eventually the skies opened in a massive storm that drenched the youngsters' clothes. They had to spend the night sheltering close to a bus stop. The heat of the day transformed into the chill of night. They had decided to limit themselves to half a loaf of bread and a pint of milk per person for each day of the entire journey. Cyril, determined as ever to be the most virtuous of even this virtuous crowd, saved a portion of his bread and shared it with his friends. What distinguished Cyril on this trip was not this characteristic display of conspicuous selflessness, but his unwillingness to tolerate the casual abuse of whites whom they encountered along the way. On one occasion, the boys were swimming in a small dam, cooling off from the hot midday sun. 
A Zephyr 6 car, pulling a small trailer, slowed to a halt with steam pouring out from under the hood. In the front there sat two young Afrikaners, a boy and a girl. The driver asked their help carrying water to the car. In return, he agreed to their request for a ride, and the five of them clambered onto the small trailer with their bags. After a long ride, they arrived at the home of the young Afrikaner woman's father. They disentangled their limbs and climbed stiffly from the trailer, thanking their driver for the ride. Cyril very politely turned to the older man and asked, Munir, could you please give us some bread and water? The old man turned to him dismissively and said, Fuck off. This is not a black man's hotel. Cyril stood his ground, expressionless, and shouted back, Futek, you're an arrogant Afrikaner, before turning coldly on his heels. A few days later, Cyril and his friends stopped at a small shop to buy their bread loaves and milk for the day ahead. They heard a car coming and rushed outside in the hope of a lift. The driver, a young Afrikaner, slowed his car, but then refused their request by shouting at them in Afrikaans, Fuck off, you kaffirs! Cyril shouted back, also in Afrikaans, You fuck off yourself! You're full of the devil! Such confrontations could have been a recipe for violence. But on these two occasions, and as was to become commonplace in Cyril's later years, whites who were the victim of his contempt found themselves unable to confront him. His refusal even to express his disgust with apartheid's indignities was beginning. He would soon walk into a restaurant without concern for the clientele. If there was a whites-only or Europeans-only sign, not only would he not look at it, but he would sit directly underneath it, apparently without noticing it was there. In such situations, no one can recall any person daring to confront him. Cyril seemed to radiate a sense of effortless self-confidence and a complete absence of fear. This fearlessness and sense of personal invulnerability further bolstered the respect with which he was viewed by his peers, because he now seemed to offer a shield, almost a force shield, behind which they could safely retreat. The poet Wally Sirotti wrote in the 1970s of the retrospective shame that many black people felt for accepting or even embracing those who treated them like dogs. I did this world great wrong with my kindness of a dog, my heart like a dog's tongue, licking too many hands, boots and bums, even after they kicked my ass. Futek, futek, shit. I still wagged my tail. I ran away, still looking back with eyes saying, please. By the time he was 17, Ramaphosa had quite lost the ability to run away. The friend's journey was to take them nine days in total. Their nights were spent under the stars and their days passed in relentless walking. They rode in trucks and buckies and one day all five squeezed with their bags into a tiny Anglia car that already had three occupants. On Boxing Day, the 26th of December, they trudged all day long without a single lift and slept under a bridge in a small town. Little by little they edged towards their destination, through Jutenhaeg, the Tsitsikama Forest and Mossel Bay, splitting into twos and threes to take any available lift. Eventually, the last of them arrived in Cape Town just before the New Year 
1972. Cyril began to prepare his mind for his studies in law at the quiet backwater of the University of the North. He was about to walk into a political explosion.